When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us once again is our good friend and Pod Dylan five-timer, <laughs> Patrick Butler. Hey, Pat, welcome back. Hey, Rob. I'm, I'm expecting a co-host credit at some point here. I mean, uh... Point, yeah. You will actually just be the de facto co-host once you write <laughs> a certain number of appearances. Uh, we're here to talk about Fourth Time Around, which is from 1966's Blonde on Blonde. It's on side three of that double album. Uh, yep. So, Pat, why did you want to talk about this one? A couple of reasons. So let me just say that, first off, I mean, this is obviously one of the, the canon albums that you have to own if you, if you get into Bob Dylan, right? I mean, it's it's considered by a lot of people to be his best album. I don't disagree. I, I tend to feel it's one of the top three. But uh, this song has always been really interesting to me. Um, first off, we should say this is one of the uh, a more simple Dylan lyric. You know, it's not as uh, wildly you know hallucinatory and filled with all kinds of crazy imagery, etc. You know, it's it's a fairly straightforward song, although it's got some stuff in it. That as as always, yeah, it's got some stuff. Yeah, I mean, compared to visions of Johanna and stuck inside of Mobile and. Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, this one is relatively simple. Exactly. And um, I think it's a good entry point because we can talk a little bit about 1960s, like, Dylan and the whole, like, New York scene of, like, Andy Warhol and the factory because people forget and don't really know that he was a little bit involved in that. Um, And, of course, the most famous thing about it, which is that this is supposedly kind of a rejoinder or a response to the Beatles. Right, (laughs) right. You know, I'm not. I'm, it's a late night here, so I can't really play guitar because I don't want to wake up my neighbors. But, um, <laughs> but if you know, if you listen to the song "One Too Many Mornings," this it's basically the same chords. Um, oh, wow. He's got he's got a little bit of a different melody, and he finger picks the chords a little differently. And I think that this, and I'm sure, and you as I both know, you know, Bob Dylan listens to a lot of music. You know. Oh yeah. And, I'm sure that he probably took the song One Too Many Mornings from some old Irish folk ballad or, you know, Appalachian string ballad or something, turned that into that song. And then I think what happened is John Lennon heard that and then wanted to basically write his version of that. Because right. if you listen to the song Norwegian Wood, Norwegian it's Wood, right. somewhat of a similar, you know, kind of waking up with this woman and, you know, the distance and, you know... Um, and then, which also has very, very similar chords to One Too Many Mornings, and obviously there's a little bit of differences with the sitar in Norwegian Wood. And then I think Bob Dylan heard that and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal it back. <laughs> and then he wrote this. Because uh, fourth time around, the lyric never shows up in this song. Right. And it, he never sings the word fourth time around. He never says anything like that. But a lot of people have, um, and I've talked to a lot of other musicians about this, if you really like, compare those three songs... You know, I think what he's saying with Four Time Around is, so now it's now this song is coming back again, right? Because I took it from one guy. You know, one guy wrote it. <laughs> I took it from him. Then I went to John Lennon. Now it's back to me. So. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. I've never heard that. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so that's, so I've always just loved it. It's all, it's, um, 
it's what the the third to last song on the record. Yes. Um, yeah. Before Sad Eyed Lady of the Lonely Land. So um, I would actually argue. I mean, I, you know, I actually kind of consider this my. I used to have a tape of this album that I made. And remember in the old days, Rob, when you can only get like uh, forty minutes, thirty minutes aside or something. <laughs> yeah, the Paleozoic <laughs> so, era. Yeah. Yeah, so I had a, I had like a mini blonde on blonde album, and this was the last song. So when I would like do my paper route or something, this is how the album ended for me for a while. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I will admit this was one of the ones that uh, initially just didn't grab me a whole lot because I, I had a hard time making sense of it. It sounded a little bit like kind of gibberish in in some ways, mm-hmm. or Dylan just kind of goofing around. I mean, it opens with. Well, when she said, don't waste your words, they're just lies, I cried she was deaf, and she worked on my face until breaking my eyes, and then said, what else you got left? It was then I got up to leave, but she said, don't forget, everybody must give something back for something they get. I stood there and hummed, I tapped on her drum and asked her how come, and she buttoned her boot and straightened her suit, and then she said, don't get cute. So I forced my hands into my pockets and felt with my thumbs and gallantly handed her my very last piece of gum. Now, I like the rhyme scheme of all that, mm-hmm. the way the, the rhymes kind of fall in the middle of the lines and yep. then kind of wind their way back into the other line. But it, I will admit, the first time I, I first couple times I heard the song, I just sort of dismissed it as, all right, this is just sort of stoner. Like This is, <laughs> this is, this is Bob whacked out of his head on this one. <laughs> And, you know, then I did some research, and, and you talked about that this is inspired by Norwegian Wood, which, of course, was then in, in Norwegian Wood, was inspired by Dylan. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, over time, it's kind of gotten lost to history that, you know, when when the Beatles were really getting huge, mm-hmm. they were not considered, you know, great music by the real hip crowd. True. They, they were considered, like, the teeny boppers. And Dylan was way out over his skis, sort of, and said, no, 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 these guys are good. You know, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a story I read about where he was in a car with somebody else, and uh, I forget which which Beatles song came on. It might have been She Loves You, Yeah, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah. And he stopped the car and got out and literally jumped around the car. He was so excited as to what he was hearing. Like, he, 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 was, he recognized the sophisticated musicianship that the Beatles were, were putting out. And he was like, man, he just and he was impressed that they were so commercially popular as mm. well. Because of course, you know, as popular as Dylan is, even even at the height of his '60s popularity, he never came even a, a <laughs> close to the Beatles. Not even a scintilla of popularity yeah. of the Beatles. So I think, you know, as much as Bob was an artiste, you know, he was also a commercial artist, and I'm sure he would have sure. loved to have had, you know, five hit singles on the charts the way the Beatles did. Uh, so, you know, this was, it, it, it's, um, these guys worked off one another, you know, they inspired right. one another back and forth. And isn't it kind of amazing to think that considering all the time they spent hanging out together, they never recorded together. There's, there is no, as far as we've ever heard any yeah. Dylan and the Beatles recordings, which seems kind of amazing when you think about it, they, they hung out a lot they got stoned together all the time and yeah. stuff like that. But I mean, so this is, I mean, I always took this song a little bit as as a lark, as kind of a goof, almost a parody. Mm. Uh, that isn't really fair because there is more to it. And when you by, by the time you get on to the, um, the the final verse, the fifth verse, where he says, "And when I was through, I filled up my shoe and brought it to you, and you you took me in. You loved me then. You didn't waste time. And I never took much. I never asked for your crutch. Now don't ask for mine." 
Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I love the idea that, you know, what in the final verse, there's a third person introduced yes. into the story, which fits in very much with the blonde on blonde kind of thing. There's a lot of three people songs on blonde on blonde. They're stuck inside of Mobile and Visions of Johanna. There's more than one person going on uh, yep. in any of these situations. And then the, the final line, the uh, I never asked much. I never asked for your crutch. Now don't ask for mine. To me... I'm like, that line really pops out at me. Me too. Uh, as the kind of thing where even if the rest of the song is kind of gibberish, that that's a that's an amazing turn of phrase and that's a, that's something you can take with you through your life. You know, you you oh, yeah. you, you, you you're saying to somebody, Hey, I've never asked you for you know, I've never called you into question for what you need, so don't do that to me. That's that's an amazing line. It's an amazing line and it actually I think makes elevates the song in a lot of ways because I'm with you. I actually, I think you're right. There's a, it's, it's more of, um, well, you know, we're, we're going to get into this in a minute, but as he talked about recently, <laughs> you know, you want your sound song to sound good. And so I think, you know, a lot of these lines sound good, you know, um, you know, lies, Ryan, you know, he lies, rhymes with eyes, you know, right. uh, left goes, don't forget, you know, for something they get. But I always personally, and I'm, and again, you know, this is Bob Dylan we're talking about, you know, you know how much I love him. But I've always thought my very last piece of gum was kind of a throwaway line. Like, that's a fun <laughs> line that he could have worked on. But as we know from the story of these recording sessions, you know, this was a kind of a one or two take night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I think I've always wondered if he kind of wishes he could have gone back and kind of fixed that line a little bit. Because it's just, it's just a little juvenile, I think. But, you know, because thumbs, you know, there's not a ton of stuff you can rhyme with thumbs. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Uh, but then I always love this, that the thing I always thought was really strange about this song is he has the whole sense of, he has this whole discussion about, he gets thrown outside, right? I stood in the door where everyone walked, and then after finding, I'd forgotten my shirt, I go back and I knock. I waited in the hallway, she went to get it, and I tried to make sense. And then, out of that picture of you in your wheelchair that leaned up against, what, like, what? <laughs> I remember the first time I heard that being, like, totally weirded out, like, Wait, there's like a picture of a girl in a wheelchair that he's into or something? I'm not... (laughs) Um, And then, of course, he ties it up at the end where he basically leaves the girl that he's been talking about at the beginning of the song Mm -hmm. and is talking about this other person who basically... His lover, I guess. You know, you loved me then. You didn't waste time. And then, of course, but I never asked for your crutch. Now, don't ask for mine. I mean, that's... You know, it's that biting thing that he was doing, you know, where it was like, this isn't really a love song. But this is kind of like a codependent love song, you know? Yeah. It's I just think it's a real... Like, so to me, like, that alone is interesting. And it's not something that... Certainly not something the Beatles necessarily would have written, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, as good as they were. Um, I've always heard... I don't know if you've read a little bit about this, that, you know, Warhol... Andy Warhol was really uh, into Bob, and Bob yeah. was kind of interested in all those people, and that this song is kind of the story of Edie Sedgwick. Right. Which apparently a lot of the songs on Blonde and Blonde are about who, you know, was this beautiful, uh, you know, uh, daughter of the super wealthy Manhattan family, but had kind of chosen the life of this artistic, you know, happening art group down in, down in, uh, what was it, like Chelsea area or something, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then if you, but if you look at this song, this is him basically, he was dating her, I guess, although <laughs> no, no one really knew this, I guess, until much later, but, so most of the, the girl in the song that he's having the fight with is her, and that Sarah, his first wife, 
is the is the person that you know that the last verse is about you know the person mm-hmm. that he basically left her for and that that's you know she's the one that took him in and didn't waste time because they got married right around the time that he made this album right yeah they, so, they got married in november of 65 so it's interesting oh, wow. it's very interesting how many songs on on blonde on blonde are about failed relationships or one night stands considering yeah. he had just got married not too long after not too long before this yeah that is yeah well that you know he's a real you know i've said this a million times he's a real artist you know what i mean he he goes where the muse takes him but um that is really interesting actually now that you bring that back up because again this song is kind of about a failed relationship but it's also about a new relationship and it comes like i said like right before a song that's clearly about <laughs> His new wife, you right, know, right. Um, which is his epic, you know, 14 minute song sat at Lady of the Lowlands, <laughs> right. uh, which is not a song I'm going to ever talk about with you on this podcast because I just don't have the time. But um, but anyway, so, yeah, so I just thought it was a really interesting song. I think it's I think it's just a really cool thing. I love that he titled it a fourth time around. Um, there's a story that, like, you know, John Lennon got like really paranoid when he heard that line about uh, the crutch. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> he thought Dylan was talking about him. Um I find that a little, I'm not so sure that that was quite going on, but, uh, you know, I, I can see John Lennon getting paranoid about Bob Dylan, who he thought was, you know, John Lennon was very competitive, as we all know, and I think he really thought that he was as good as Dylan and got, like, kind of mad that Dylan got all the credit, you know, and the Beatles were these teeny boppers until they really, you know, broke out on their own, um, and the only reason I think that they never probably re- recorded together was probably a mix of things. I mean, I... I don't think Bob has ever really been a big studio sound experimentation guy, you know? No, no. And that's where they were headed at that time, so I don't think that they would have really been vibing, you know, getting along as or necessary. And he's also, and I, I think I've said this before, and I'm sure some of your other musician guys will tell you, I mean, Bob is not like a, he's more of a, he's more, he's like a songwriter. He kind of brings the regular, the germ of a song in, you know? And then the band kind of fleshes it out, you know? Um, whereas I think the Beatles were really sophisticated, you know, with musical instruments and things. So that, I'm sure that would have, I mean, and look, hey, Harrison, you know, he, you know, they jammed a lot and they, we, we have some of those recordings. So, yeah. um, but yeah the, uh, the, yeah, the whole way the Beatles recorded everything pretty much going on from like revolver on would have been really antithetical to how, yeah. Dylan, how Dylan did it. I mean, that, right. that would have been because they were all about working on the song until they got the absolute perfect version. And if they did 50 takes of it, then they did right. 50 takes and Dylan just was never interested in doing 50 takes of anything. Yeah, he wasn't going to do, maybe he might do 30, but, <laughs> but, uh, but it would always be kind of, um, and it would always be have those variations, you know, because there's a lot of improv in Dylan, you know, and the Beatles, like you said, were very much meticulous studio craftsmen, you know, and, you know, it was just a very different aesthetics that they were going for. But I just think it's, a, I think it's, a, I think it's for, for an album that is as monumental as Blonde and Blonde, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the best song in the album or anything, but I think it's a, I think it's a cool little tune. And like I said, if you, if, you know, for musicians and stuff, it's really easy to learn. But I do think it's a little deceptive there. And and it's actually a fairly hard song to sing, you know, because you really got to get that melody line right while you're strumming those chords, you know. And, um, you know, I just always find it really, I always thought it was kind of interesting. And, you know, I like the words and I just like the whole sentiment. But I think, I think, like I said, all the best Dylan songs, sometimes the last verse is the one that kills you, you know? <laughs> and when you get to that line about, you know, I never asked for your crush, now don't ask for mine. Now don't ask for mine. Like, he could have said so many other things, you know, but, I, you know, I'll always be there for you or something like that. But that's not what he says. He says, right, right. like, don't lean on me too much. You know, don't, 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 uh, you know, don't expect so much out of this or something. And so, you know, there's, it's just such a, like you said, it's like you said, it's like, 
there's something there. It's not. It's a ditty. It's a bit of a throwaway, but there's still something kind of interesting going on. And what can you say? That's what Bob Dylan does great. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the, and the version on Blonde on Blonde is the the, the guitar part is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like the melody. Now, is that do you? Is that Michael Bloomfield? I'm assuming that is Michael Bloomfield, not Dylan, I, right? Or do I don't think Michael Bloomfield's on Blonde on Blonde. I think Bloomfield's on. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. I well, wait blonde. a minute. Doesn't he play on I Want You? Doesn't he? Doesn't he play that? I don't. I don't. You know, I don't think so because I think Blonde on Blonde was all done in Nashville. Um, I know Robbie Robertson's definitely on some tracks on Blonde on Blonde, but I think it's either Charlie McCoy, who also was a drummer but plays the guitar part on Desolation Row, or I'll have to look it up. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but there's a lot of um, Nashville session musicians on Blonde on Blonde, right. you know, who, who are these incredible, like, they can play 40 instruments better than, you know, probably better than the Beatles, you know. Um, it might be. I don't know. I, I think Bloomfield was a bit out of the picture by mid 66 well i mean not in terms of like out of the picture but i mean i think you know i think the time with dylan because that's the other thing bob does a lot right he like kind of likes to find musicians maybe does like a year with them remember the last session we talked about those kids in la the punk band you know (laughs) he hangs out with you for like six seven months maybe does some recording and then like never calls you again so i'll have to look but i I don't think so that sounds to me more like charlie mccoy you know what i'm I'm, i have it up in front of me you're right it is not uh it is not bloomfield it it lists all the different musicians and it's probably charlie mccoy doing guitar it's a really beautiful oh it's gorgeous guitar that that tune in but the one i will say the 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 version of this that really clicked for me though is not the blonde on blonde one it's the one on the live 1966 concert uh, the bootleg series, because that mm-hmm. version is when Dylan was doing the shows with the band, and he was doing yep. the first half of the show acoustically, and then the second half with the band, and he did this version, he did this song acoustically, and so it's, to me, and I actually like that version better, because it's his vocal driving mm-hmm. the song, as opposed yeah. to the Blonde on Blonde version, where the tune is really the thing that's sort of chugging along, yeah. and I, there's something about just him and the acoustic guitar singing these words, this very sort of personal message to this woman or whoever, yeah. that to me really worked. And so that's where the song really came alive for me, is that the live 1966 version. I'm like, again, especially when he gets to the part of the end, when he does the whole line about, uh, don't, you know, don't, I never ask for your crutch, don't ask for mine. And he lets it just hang there. Yeah. It's really beautiful. I mean, I like the Blonde and Blonde version because it's just musically it's, mm-hmm. it's really pretty, but I, the, the the live one is the one that I really clicked clicked with. I love that you just said that because I'm literally looking at a copy of my live CD right now, <laughs> staring across from me. But um, yeah, I well, I, I think that whole first half of that disc is all. I mean, that whole show must have been yeah. like I can't. I'm so jealous of those people getting to see that, and I can't believe they yell at him, you know. But um, Judas, like, <laughs> I don't believe you, um, but. I really, I, I agree with you. You know, it's I, I actually, because I grew up listening to the Blonde and Blonde version, and I think I was in high school when the 66, or I was probably, yeah, sometime in high school, I think, when 66 came out. And I just remember being like, this is awesome. Because, you know what I mean? You get to really hear what those shows were like. And I think you're right. I think that's the thing. Like I was saying, so he's not, he's not, I don't think he, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, Rob, but I suspect he probably can't play that melody line on the guitar. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. That's just my sense. Cause I feel like I said, like the band would pick up a lot of the stuff on the songs and kind of add these little flourishes. Um, 
you know, Al Cooper said that, like, when it came to I Want You, you know, the 16th note thing, dun, 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 that that was a guitar part that someone played. He just says, like, keep that. And, like, Bob had never heard that before, you know, and then that oh, became man. the lead of the song, you know? Yeah. So, um, but I, I agree with you. I like the way he, I really like the way he does it on the 66 show because when you make the vocal, it also emphasizes the words more, yep. you know? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's like a, Listen, if this is the if this is like a bad song or kind of throwaway song for Bob Dylan, <laughs> like oh man, yeah, <laughs> awesome, you know, you're getting a pretty awesome song. So yeah. yeah, it's cool. I don't think he ever really did it after that, right? I mean, there's basically that version and He's the live only, version. He has only performed it 37 times in yeah. 50 years. He actually recent the most recent performance of it was in 2002, though. So wow. uh, he is he is occasionally willing to pull it out. I would be pretty amazed if I ever heard that live yeah. in front of me because it's, uh, you know, a very, very unusual song for him to play. But, yeah, it's not something he's returned to very much. Basically, the versions that you see that are available are all the ones from the 60s. So it was kind of a big yeah. 60s song, and then he basically sort of just forgot about it. And, I mean, you can see, if you can look it up, he we went through a whole period, though, like from 99 through 2000 where he was playing it a bunch. And then yep. that, that's been it. And that was, you know, that was 15 years ago at this point. He hasn't, I know. He hasn't I done know. it. The man just keeps going. But uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not something he, he you know, placed, uh, you know, bothers to go back to very much. But it really, and you're right about it. It's like if a lot of other musicians had this song under the belt, this would be a, a career builder. Exactly. And for, for Bob Dylan, it was kind of a toss-off almost because it was like, yeah. he, of course, by Blonde on Blonde being a double album, he had to have a lot of songs on it. Yeah. Because Sad Eye Lady of the Lowlands was going to take up all of side four. So it's like, right. well, if I got to do that, I got to have a bunch of other songs. But I mean, it's, and it, it's a nice contrast to it, the fact that it's so short. It's only about mm-hmm. four minutes long as opposed to Sad Eyed, which is 14 minutes, and Visions of Johanna, and Stuck, stuck Inside a Mobile. Yeah. These epic, epic songs. So um, it fits quite well on the album. I agree. I agree. I think it's, I think it's a nice, I, and I've always said, I think it's a bit of a nice, you know, cleanses the palate a little bit you know what i mean yep. it just kind of it slows things down and then it goes back you know it's just a nice and i think that's one of the things i really love about that album is that there's all kinds of songs on there you know there's fast songs there's blues songs you know there's like old music hall songs and then you have this kind of i mean it, it also sounds like a lot of his folk songs you know what i mean you take away the drums a little bit you know it, it could have been it kind of could have been on something on like another side or mm. Um, bringing it all back home, I think, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely on bringing it back home. So I oh, yeah. That. I can definitely hear that. So, yeah, it's fourth time around. It's a good song. It's worth it's worth checking out in case you haven't heard it. So before uh, I let Pat go, there is something <laughs> that we wanted to talk about because between yes. the last recording, uh, the last episode we recorded and this episode, the audio of Bob's uh, Nobel speech got released. All 27 minutes of it, uh, there's a little musical accompaniment, a little piano <laughs> tinkling in the back. I read an interview with the guy that yeah. got, got, that got uh, picked to do that. He actually worked with Dylan in the 70s yeah. on one of his tours, and then they just called him out of the blue, and he recorded these things. And um, so, you know, I don't have a whole lot to say about the Nobel speech other than um, this is something that I've mentioned uh, before, is that, you know, it's nice to just hear Bob talk. You know, mm. just just to hear him just talk normal, and Absolutely. he he is a spellbinding storyteller. Absolutely. Uh, and in this Nobel speech, he talks about Moby Dick, and he talks about All Quiet on the Western Front, and his influences, and how they worked in songs. And he has a really um, beautiful speaking voice. I think it's very mellifluous. 
it's it's kind of like he he knows how to convey a story, and mm. so it's just it's, he's like when you when you listen to him long form, it's like the coolest professor Absolutely. that you're ever going to have. And so I, li- I I listened to that all 27 minutes of it, and I thought that you know. Get, get, you know, get this guy an audiobook to narrate. You know, I mean, I mean, he didn't do Chronicles. He didn't do his own book. But like, right. you know, next time somebody wants to do an audio dramatization of some old timey novel, get Bob to do it because he, oh, he would just be so fascinating to listen to. He is just a just an interesting guy to sit around and talk to. And then just yeah. hearing that Nobel speech was was really quite spellbinding. I, I, I that I think you summed it up pretty perfectly. I, I just want to add a, a couple of quick things. I mean, I, I actually really enjoyed hearing his thoughts on three books that I think I don't know about you, but I read in in high school. You know, um, I did read I feel, Moby Dick. I, I made it a I made it a point of pride to actually read Moby Dick. So <laughs> I will say I read that one. Well, as I've mentioned many times, I'm from Massachusetts, and I've been down to the uh, New Bedford Whaling Museum several times. So <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan. So. You know, I um, I just thought I thought I agree. I think he he has a wonderful speaking voice, and I just love. He seems like he's like the the coolest grandparent in the world, and <laughs> you know, like I would sit and listen to this guy tell like whatever stories he wants to tell because they just and he made those books kind of come alive again for me. You know, I I mean his descriptions of all three, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front, Moby Dick, and The Odyssey. I mean, again, I read those in high school. I can't say that I, like, retained everything about them. And I do remember, like, in, you know, really, okay, this is important stuff. It's in, You have to know this, you know. Um, but to kind of hear him summarize it and how it impacted him and his art and, you know, I just was like, God, is there this guy can just, like, there's something about these speeches, the Music Care speech, this speech, you know. Um, oh, yeah, the Music Cares one, too, is amazing. I really love that one. Um, they're just wonderful speeches, and I just feel like you go down a rabbit hole with him, you know, and and you don't really you start in one place. He starts talking about Buddy Holly in this speech, and yeah. by the end he's talking about the Odyssey. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, if you really think about it, that's pretty much genius to connect, you know, one of the great American, you know, kind of early rock and rollers, you know, to one of the epics of Greek literature that's still, you know, you know, discussed today, and. You know, so that that I think is really cool, and I and I also just like I said, I loved his descriptions of of these books and these stories and how they, you know, and and you know he's he's done this a bunch of times now in the last few years, where he's really tried to show you like, okay, this is where I'm into, this is what I come from, but I never tire of it, and I think it's wonderful. I will also say that I really cannot stand the um, how do I say this, the literary establishment, you know these people that are like just obsessed with um, this Nobel prize for literature and being very upset that he got it. I read a couple of things where people were saying like, well, he finally understands that, you know, lit- you know, these writers are more important in some ways or they're more literary. And I just thought like, you don't really get it, you know, cause he said something about how you want your songs to sound good. And he, I think he quotes John Donne and he's like, I don't know what that means. It just sounds good. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of love that. And I'm like, I think he's really trying to tell you that it's actually all part of the same thing. And that literature and words and music are all, you know, they're all expression. They're all human creative expression. And that is so important. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, sometimes these, these more literary types, you know, they turn their noses up at that. And, I'm like, I also think he just, like, he gave it to them, what, like, three, four days before it was due, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 
And I'm like, I just think you, I think people think he should be really impressed and really wowed and really like, wow, I won the Nobel Prize. And I just don't think that would ever mean that much to him. You know what I mean? The way that, you know, writing a good song or, or, or you know, you know, doing music is what he does. And I think that it matters to him when, you know, musicians honor him and think about him and, you know, to be regarded as a great songwriter. I think he really, really craves that and, and is really proud of that. I don't think, you know, all the other war awards in the world, I don't think really mean that much to him. It just, I mean, he's never indicated that it's meant that, I mean, he'll, he'll take it, you know what I mean? If you're going to give it to him, he'll take it. Um, but I actually think that's always been part of the cool thing about him is that like, he's just not wowed away by all this hype and, you know, and I then and like you said, you know, Rob, you really you've really convinced me. This is this man has had an impact on world culture the way that Faulkner and you know other people who have won the Nobel have. And so I think it's you know I just think it confirmed once again that this was absolutely deserved. And you know I don't think we're ever going to see another guy like this. I really don't. You know, I, maybe you know, but probably not in our lifetimes. You know, no, certainly not. And it, yeah, it's. I mean, he has he has talked uh, about you know his recording processes, and we were again just in this very show we were talking about you know how that's contrasted against how the Beatles approached things, um, and you know he his attitude about recording songs was at any given point this was how it came out when I had to record it, right. and, that, and that's it to to him that's that's the level of permanence. But so right. I, I think he ascribes more to the words. Uh, sort of like that's the part that's going to last and go on forever, and that's I think that's why he thinks of himself in that in that context. And, and the, yeah. the musician, the music part of it is, is something sort of separate. But yeah, it's a, like I said, he's just it was it's it. You know, I've talked about briefly about the the movie, the No Direction Home movie, and mm-hmm. I've, I've mentioned on other shows and other podcasts that I've guested on about you know the the main compliment that I've heard paid about No Direction Home is this, that it has extended periods of just Bob talking normal. Yeah, and I like that, and this is why I like about this. It's just I I was listening to it at work, and I found myself just getting caught up in it. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, because like you said, it's like he starts talking about Buddy Holly, and mm-hmm. then he moves on to Moby Dick and All Quiet on the Western Front, and then I was like, wait a minute, how did he get to the Odyssey? Wait, wait what yeah. happened? And, it's because, <laughs> and he is just he's one of those guys that can just sort of take you by the hand and lead you through this story. And yeah. it all seems to make sense, and then you, at the end of it, you find yourself completely in a different spot than you ever would have imagined. And he's a thoughtful guy. He's a smart guy. He's a funny guy. He's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. He seems to be at this age, uh, very aware, of course, of of sort of his place in the firmament, and mm-hmm. he's kind of he seems sort of relaxed about that now. He didn't. Yeah. I don't think he used to be, but now he sort of is, and that's kind of pleasurable to listen to. So, yeah, I thought it was really charming. I thought it was really charming, Me and I'm too. glad that we got a chance to hear it, because it seems yeah. like something that would be you know, behind closed doors. So I'm glad that the, 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 the public got to, got to hear him say yeah. what he yeah. said. So. Yeah, this is, kind of the, this is kind of fun, this kind of the last few years of Bobdom, you know what I mean, to get yeah. some speeches and, and you know, uh, No Direction Home, things like that, the last 10, 12 years, you know, to really start to, like, kind of you know, because he's always been this guy on record covers for me, you know what I mean, and, and his voice on the records, but, you know, and obviously in the stage, but, you know, I can't say I really know what he sounded like in part, you know, if he was walking on the street, I don't know if I'd know what he sounded like or something, you know. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. <laughs> I finally started hearing it and then getting that sense of his rhythms. And also, I gotta say, this is my last thing I'll say, but you kind of get the sense, too, like, like 
it's like the records and stuff, that's like kind of how he is in real life. You know what I mean? In terms of like the way he talks, the way he's thinking all the time and the way, he, you know, his, like you said, his voice and, and everything. I was like, he almost sounded like he was rat, not rapping, rapping, you know what I mean? But I almost felt he was like kind of singing me something a little bit, you know? He's got a and, sing-songy voice, the way he speaks. Yeah. It's got this ebb and flow to it and a, yeah. it's got peaks and valleys and you kind of find yourself kind of like you're on a boat, you know, and you're just sort of floating along with how he's talking. Absolutely. And so yeah. The very last, the very last thing I will mention just about it, uh, about this whole speech is I read an article. I used to subscribe to a Dylan magazine called On the Tracks, which was like mm-hmm. real diehards. Yep. And uh, there was an article about, you know, why does Dylan show up for these awards? Like it was right after he got the Golden Globe for th- mm. for things have changed, and he actually went to the Golden Globes, which people were surprised at, and. You know, there were these people were like, oh, is he kind of a sellout? He's showing up, which is, you know, God, he's been been called a sellout since 1963. Um, But it's it's one of the one of the opinions uh, that the writer had was, look, we all have to acknowledge and, and it's easy to forget this because of his legendary status. He's a guy. He's just a guy. And he's a guy who has a large family. He has five or six children. He has multiple grandchildren. I think he even has a great-grandchild at yep, this point. He does. he does. There you go. And it might simply be that he knows that his family take pride in looking mm-hmm. at their dad or their grandpa going on stage and getting an award. That might just be a sit, you know? I mean, for, for, for any of us, that would be a huge life-changing oh, yeah. event. And for someone like Bob, it's maybe not as big a deal because he's gotten the Presidential Medal of Freedom and he's gotten the Kennedy Center honor and he's gotten an Oscar. But it might just simply be that, you know, his grandkids want to see Grandpa up on stage hanging out with, uh, you know, getting an award from Martin Scorsese or something. And it might be something that simple. It might just be, hey, there's Grandpa getting his Nobel Prize. Isn't that awesome? You know, (laughs) it could just be something that simple. And I like that idea. He's just a guy, you know what I mean? I mean, we have this. I mean, the other thing is you got to remember he's been. This has been happening to him. This kind of accolade and praise since he was like what, twenty two years old. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? He, I mean, he is. He has been that guy. But it, I think you're right. I think behind closed doors and for the most part and stuff, like he's just a guy. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's, you know, they say, you know, they say like when you're when you're just hanging out in the studio with them, he loves to talk about like cowboy movies and motorcycles and you know. <laughs> He's just a guy, you know, he's, uh, yeah. What I wouldn't so. kill for that, just for five minutes to talk about, I know. about any I subject, whatever he wants to talk about. <laughs> uh, sorry, well, I think that's going to do it for yep. the time around and for the Nobel speech. So, uh, Pat, thank you once again, man. I always enjoy talking to you. So thanks so, so much for coming back on. Robert, you know, like I said, the show's the best, and uh, thank you. All right, thank you very much. Uh, everybody, of course, if you want to listen to back episodes of the show, find them on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. And there's got all the Pod Dylans plus all the other shows from our network. And you can uh, talk about Bob Dylan over on our Twitter feed, which is at uh, pod underscore Dylan. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Until the next episode, uh, we will see you then. Bye. Don't waste your words, they're just lies. I cried, she was dead. 
When I received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was. I'm going to try to articulate that to you, and most likely it will go in a roundabout way. But I hope what I say will be worthwhile and purposeful. If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18, and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on—country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses, and he sang great. He sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype, everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying, and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than twenty-two. Something about him seemed permanent, and he filled me with conviction. Then, out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something—something something I didn't know what. And he gave me the chills. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down. 
and somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there, transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off, like I'd been walking in darkness, and all of a sudden the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. <laughs> ¶¶ 